0: Welcome to Cosmic Controversy with author and veteran science journalist, Bruce Dormandy, host of the podcast that asks probing questions about today's aerospace and astronomy. Bruce is author of Distant Wanderers, the search for planets beyond the solar system, and a Forbes.com science contributor.
1: Now, here's Bruce. Welcome to episode five of Cosmic Controversy. Today's guest is astronomer Stacy McGaw, studied at MIT, Princeton, and the University of Michigan, and subsequently was a research fellow at both the UK's University of Cambridge and the Carnegie Institution of Washington. Today, he is chair of the Department of Astronomy at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio, where McGaw has been studying galaxies, dark matter, and theories of modified gravity for decades now. He joins us from the Cleveland area to discuss the mystery of dark matter. Stacy. welcome to Cosmic Controversy.
0: Hello, Bruce. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure to be
1: with you. So let's get right to it. What is dark matter and why should we care?
0: Well, so uh, we should care because <laughs> it's most of what's going on in the universe. What it is, uh, we don't know. Um, Those are the words that we use to encompass our ignorance uh, of either what most of the mass in the universe is or that potentially um, what we infer to be missing mass is really an indication that our knowledge of the law of gravity is incomplete. Um, Either way, it's a really fundamental issue uh, that has yet to be sorted out. And what puzzles you most about dark matter? Well, I'd like to say what it is, um, but that doesn't even quite encompass it. uh, Because saying I would like to know what it is is true, but it also presupposes that the answer is some form of invisible mass. um, And that is one possibility that it's literal, hard-to-see, dark, invisible matter. Um, but, like I say, it's it's kind of ambiguous much of the evidence uh, as to whether that's the case or whether we infer the need for this extra mass because we, we get the laws of gravity wrong on the scales that I study.
1: So, what's the breakdown on normal matter versus unseen matter in the
0: cosmos? Ah, uh, so… Uh, there is a canonical quantity that cosmologists like to refer to as omega, which is sort of the, the critical mass density of the universe, uh, which defines the over-under point between a universe that will expand forever and one that will re-collapse. The normal matter, uh, the protons and neutrons and electrons, the stuff that you and I are made of, that all the stars that we can see are made of, uh, is maybe 5% of that critical Number So uh, a a small minority. Uh, What we think is dark matter, what we attribute to this invisible mass, is about 25%. Uh, And then the remainder, uh, the remaining 70%, is something we call dark energy, uh, which has nothing to do with dark matter. So uh, the normal matter is only the 5%. Most of the gravitating mass is that 25%.
1: And uh, so what is the current breakdown on non-baryonic or
0: uh, exotic dark matter and normal matter? So that you know, 5 to 25 ratio, you know, 15%, give or take, is, is normal matter, the baryonic matter, as you say. And that's the sort of particle physicist's short word for the normal particles that we know about. Um, And we have a pretty good accounting of those. Uh, We think we know what their average density in the universe is uh, to good precision.
1: And and just to be clear, baryonic matter could be interstellar, white-hot interstellar gas in the interstellar medium or intergalactic medium. Is that correct?
0: Absolutely. It can be any normal matter, whatever form it happens to take throughout the universe. So planets, stars… Uh, neutron stars, any stars that collapse to become black holes—they started out as baryonic matter, so they still count in that budget. Uh, interstellar gas, as you say, intergalactic gas, of which there seems to be quite a lot, even though it's it's super thin, very, very, very close to a perfect vacuum, and yet intergalactic space is really big, so it it adds up to a lot. Um, but yeah, there's uh, there's a lot of normal baryons out there in all those uh, different forms and whatever the dark matter is uh it ain't that and um give us a bit of the history
1: of the of dark matter uh i believe swiss american physicist fritz zwicky was the first to coin the term and do you recall when and how he did that
0: uh well it was in the 30s uh where uh, zwicky coined the term matter, um uh, which translates as dark matter um And he based his conclusions on observations of clusters of galaxies. Uh, So he was basically doing a traditional astronomical survey, um, counting up galaxies and locating where they were. And so first he looked at where they were on the sky. He noticed that there were aggregations of galaxies clumped together, clusters of galaxies. Uh, And then he measured their redshifts. By that time, Hubble's law, though new, uh, was known Uh, And he noticed that they all had comparable redshifts, so they were expanding away from us, consistent with being at the same distance as if they were really physically associated in three dimensions as a a cluster of uh, galaxies that were orbiting around each other. That all makes sense, but when he analyzed the absolute magnitude of the the velocities, how fast each galaxy was going, uh, they were going much too fast. Uh, to be held together by their mutual gravity. Um, so he inferred the need for extra gravity, which uh, one infers to be driven by this dark matter. Um, since we're starting early with history, uh, Zwicky is remembered a lot these days. Um, Jan Oort, uh, a Dutch astronomer, around the same time um, came to similar conclusions, but uh, in a very different way. Uh, looking at the motions of stars nearby to the sun in the plane of the galactic disk, and again they were moving faster than could be explained by what we could see.
1: And could you uh, you mention the Hubble law uh, for listeners who are not familiar with that uh, term? Could you give a brief parenthetical definition and and redshift as well? You mentioned the redshift of these
0: galaxies that Zwicky was surveying in the '30s. Right. So, um, one of the fundamental quantities of observational cosmology is distances. We'd like to know how big the universe is, which means measuring how far away galaxies are. Uh, And it turns out that the distance uh, to a galaxy is proportional to its redshift. The redshift is a measure of how far the spectral lines are shifted. It's basically the Doppler effect. If you've heard a a police car or something coming at you with a high-pitched squeal and then a lower-pitched squeal going away, that's the uh, audible version of the Doppler effect. You get a very similar effect uh, with light and that's what can be measured uh, with an optical spectrograph. Uh, And what Hubble found was that the distance to galaxies correlated with that redshift. That is, the more distant galaxies appeared to be moving systematically away from us faster and faster. Uh, And that is expected if the entire space of the cosmos is expanding in time, which is basically what Einstein's uh, theory of general relativity predicted uh, and famously he didn't predict that, but that's that's another story. He did recognize when Hubble reported his observations that he should have uh, predicted that, and that has been the foundation of modern cosmology ever since. Uh, that was 1929, 1930.
1: So uh, in 1996, I wrote my, my first article on dark matter, which appeared in the Financial Times, and at the time, uh, dark matter was thought to represent some 90% of the universe's missing matter To paraphrase a passage in this 24 year old article I write that if dark matter is found to be Sufficiently dense Cosmologists think that the universe would not Continue its current expansion But would crash back down onto Itself uh, Is that still the case? Is that still the
0: paradigm? So no, not really um, That was the paradigm <laughs> okay. At the time But um, all through the 1980s and into the mid 90s, uh, the most favored model was something called standard cold dark matter, uh, which had a mass density equal to or very close to the critical density, which was this over under threshold between recollapse and expanding forever. Uh, there was really a strong um, Theoretical desire for that to be the, the right answer. Uh, and it was thought that there could easily be enough dark matter to get us up to that critical density. Um, around that time, um, there was a lot of data that came out that said, no, we're we're just we're finding evidence for high mass density, but not high enough. And so that uh, around that time. Uh, the standard cold dark matter paradigm was supplanted but by, by what we now call lambda cold dark matter lambda CDM uh, and the standard was replaced by lambda because lambda is what we sometimes now call dark energy it was uh, Einstein's cosmological constant so that was that extra 70% I ma- mentioned at the beginning because uh, the dark matter is only about 25% rather than the, the 95% that we'd kind of been hoping for up until that point
1: and the critical density is again the the density at which the the universe will either expand forever or crash back onto itself.
0: That's right. Uh, that's the over under point. It's like if you if you imagine throwing a ball. Up in the air, it, it comes back down. If you throw it harder, it goes up higher. And if you keep doing that, if if you have a good enough arm, like uh, a cannon, <laughs> then uh, in principle you can launch that thing into orbit so it never falls back down.
1: But today uh, so. we, but today we can sleep a little more soundly in the knowledge that the universe is not going to crash back down to it on to itself, but will will continue its its universal expansion. Is that correct?
0: That's correct, and it's also, is more than that, and this is where the dark energy uh, kicks in because the, the lambda in lambda-CDM does not just make up that difference. It actively pushes. Um, so whereas the dark matter and the normal matter has a net attractive force that resists the expansion, the, the dark energy... Uh, drives the expansion, and so it pushes it away faster and faster. Uh, And we seem to live in a time where the universe is not only expanding, but that rate of expansion is speeding up. So instead of being in danger of uh, eventually collapsing back onto itself, uh, it's in danger of uh, expanding to the point where you can't see any galaxies at all. You just uh, rip everything apart.
1: So, is there any doubt in your mind that uh, dark energy exists?
0: I think dark energy is something that we invoke as a placeholder for our ignorance. You know, it's, it's, it's a, a basically what the philosophers of science would call an auxiliary hypothesis. Something we didn't want to believe was there. Uh, the data forced us to consider it now we have to have it in order to fit most of the cosmic data. So we've accepted that it must be so, but we don't really know what it means. I mean, we can write down the math and and understand what that does, Um, but that we had to sort of reinvent this particular wheel, because this is something uh, Einstein called his greatest blunder uh, the reason he didn't predict the expansion of the universe. You know, just the fact that we had to bring that up again is, a, is, to me, a big stop sign in the sky that we got something fundamentally wrong. Once you accept that general relativity is the be-all, end-all uh, theory for what we need to know to do cosmology, then you're absolutely forced to accept that there is dark energy. Could you give a brief parenthetical definition of general relativity? So general relativity is Einstein's generalization of uh, Newtonian gravity. Uh, Newton gave us the universal inverse square law uh, of gravity, which explains planetary motions up to, but not quite including Mercury. There's just a tiny bit of correction uh, that uh Einstein explained that uh, the excess precession of the perihelion of Mercury's orbit. It's a very subtle effect in the solar system. But the theory is a geometrical theory uh, that basically gravity isn't a force in the sense that the other forces like uh, electrostatics are. Uh, it's just that a particle wants to travel on a straight line, uh, geodesic. Uh, but that mass, the presence of mass, bends the space around it so that a straight line in our Euclidean you know, sense of a straight line is no longer straight. So uh, an object orbits another object because it's following the null geodesic, which is to say a, a straight line in a curved space-time. Uh, and so that is a much more compelling picture of how gravity just arises as a geometric effect um there's a lot more to it than that but i, I hope that'll do as a parenthetical <laughs>
1: okay but isn't it true though that uh the bending of light by when seen during an eclipse uh, uh you know from a background star during an eclipse has uh, confirmed uh, general relativity
0: yes absolutely and um that's The effect is exactly what I meant by uh, traveling in a straight line in a curved space, uh, right? So that the mass of a star uh, bends the space so that a light ray, light's just traveling in a straight line so far as it knows, Uh, but the space itself is bent and that's why its angular position uh, uh, appears to be uh, adjusted by the, the passage of a mass in front of it. That's been confirmed many times. And I'm I'm certainly not casting aspersions on general relativity. I think that is <laughs> okay. correct right. in the regimes that we have tested it, but it's not obvious that it is complete. We don't have a quantum theory of gravity. The only data that tests general relativity on cosmic scales are the data that lead us to infer the need for invisible mass and dark energy and all these crazy-sounding things. So it remains possible that there is a more general theory uh, of which general relativity is just a subset, just like Newtonian gravity is a subset of general relativity.
1: Well, let's go back to to dark matter and the early history of its discovery. The late astronomer Vera Rubin, the celebrated astronomer, registered the rotation curves of galaxies and found that there was something amiss. Can you explain that?
0: Right. So um, I was fortunate enough to know Vera when we were both at the Carnegie Institution of Washington uh, where she worked for most of her career. Uh, I was there briefly, as you mentioned at the beginning. Um, And so what she discovered she started doing this work with Margaret Burbage in the 60s, and it wasn't really clear until 1970, and it got stronger all through the 70s, uh, but that the rotation curves of spiral galaxies become flat at large radii, uh, which is to say, if you just plot how fast things are orbiting against how far away they are from the center of the galaxy, um, the speed becomes constant not perfectly constant to begin with, the different galaxies have different shape rotation curves, but they all sort of asymptote to a flat value. Uh, That flat value is different for each galaxy, but they're very consistently very nearly flat. That is a constant velocity as you get further and further and further out. Um, And that was surprising because you can apply... Newtonian gravity is all you need, but you can apply general relativity. It gives you the same answer that you should expect to see a declining rotation curve as you get further and further out. Um, Basically, Newton's inverse square law kicks in. The gravity should become weaker the further away you get, and the speeds should slow down. Um, But that is not...
1: And a rotation curve is what... How do you define a, a rotation curve?
0: How do we measure it? No, how do you define it? Uh, How do you define it? So um, what we measure is, again, the redshift and blueshift of galaxies spectra from one side of the galaxy to the other. Um, And so, you know, if you just basically imagine a a disk of stars that is spinning around all in the same plane, uh, then that rotation speed is just, you know, the absolute speed of uh, stars within that disk. Uh, So when you get out beyond, you know, at the edge and beyond the edge of the disk, you've encompassed all the mass that you can see. Um, So gravity should get weaker. Um, But it doesn't. Uh, The speeds stay more or less constant.
1: And because you see this uh, constant uh, uh, speed, that invokes a need for dark matter?
0: Exactly. You need extra gravity. And so the most conservative hypothesis is, okay, there's just some more mass there that we can't see um, so easily. Um, And in the 70s, that could be normal baryonic mass. Um, So it was easy to believe there were brown dwarfs or very faint stars, even just a lot more um, extra mass than met the eye um, that would give you this. um, And so... It started out as a small amplitude. Those early observations from the 70s didn't require, you know, these factors of 10 more, you know, 5 to 1 or 10 to 1 dark matter to normal matter. It was sort of 2 to 1. And so initially it was like, okay, it's just normal matter we can't see. Um, And as time went on, that ratio kept going up. We kept measuring further and further out, and the rotation curves just kept staying flat. And so uh, the total mass that we needed in each galaxy just kept going up and up um, until we sort of settled at a number like 10 to 1. Uh, that's come back down to maybe 5 to 1. But still, um, there's got to be a lot more than what meets the eye and, and a lot more than what can be in normal matter.
1: And uh, the late Dr. Rubin found these uh, anomalous rotation curves in surveys of nearby uh, galaxies is that correct
0: that's right just looking at all the you know spiral galaxies nearby to us um you know one of the earliest um cases where this was very clear was published in 1970 um was andromeda right the next big spiral galaxy to ourselves uh and i i remember her telling the story of, of showing this to uh Alan Sandage, who was a, an eminent um, Carnegie cosmologist at the time, and and sort of he dismissed it as saying, well, that's just an effect of looking at a a bright galaxy, because Andromeda is very bright by the standards of galaxies. And, you know, and so she was sort of like, well, what does that mean? <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> so she, and, and, and the answer is, is nothing. It's a sort of silly, knee-jerk thing that a, a bright person says when confronted with something that he, he cannot understand. And so um, she basically went out to see if this was generally the case. So she observed galaxy after galaxy after galaxy and by the late 70s it had gotten up to 100. Good uh, Lord. All of them showed the same systematic effect at which point people said, okay, this is the general rule.
1: And are we now, uh, because we have, you know, very good infrared telescopes uh you know surveying all sorts of objects in this in the on the sky can we also uh, do rotation curves of our own milky way or is that impossible from inside the milky way
0: uh it has special challenges to do our own milky way galaxy because we are within it but we can do it um and we have, at this point, a pretty good idea, I think, of what the rotation curve is um, out to, you know, two or three times even where we are. Um, and the Milky Way is a, a kind of a compact galaxy, as galaxies go. Not extraordinarily so, but uh, it has a slowly declining rotation curve that, you know, is just barely flattening out further out. Um that's within the range of variation that you see among galaxies. You know, nothing's perfectly flat, but pretty close.
1: But in other words, you're saying that the Milky Way does show signs of uh, of dark matter like all these other galaxies.
0: Yes, absolutely. It's the same discrepancy. It appears at the same scale. Um, it's just a normal spiral galaxy like any other.
1: So what about your own work? I mean, you uh, gained some... Uh Uh, Not notoriety, but um, (laughs) 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 I don't know where that came from. Anyway, you gained some acclaim for your work on uh, low surface brightness galaxies, which you found to be dark matter dominated. These are very bizarre objects uh, because uh, they did not have the normal number of stars. They have a lot of gas, but but uh, few stars. Is that is that the general idea?
0: yeah that's a reasonable description. I mean, um, probably the the way to think of it is it's a stretched out spiral galaxy. Uh, so if you imagine you know some pretty spiral galaxy in a in a picture book and you just take those stars and spread them out over a much larger area, um, then you, you keep stretching it and stretching it. There are fewer stars per unit area as you do that stretching. And so it gets fainter and fainter, that is lower in surface brightness, which is less light per unit area on the sky. Uh, and so that's, that's all these things are, is, is just really um, diffuse collections of stars. Um, and I was originally interested in these things because they were hard to find. Because they're so diffuse, um, they're easy to miss in um, surveys uh, whenever you go out and survey the universe, you always see the brightest lights first. Um, just because they're bright, they're easy to see. And so you're left wondering, well, uh, what else is out there? And so I, I was just curious about these things and, and how many there were and how they came to be. Um, and so I had done all sorts of work on that. and pretty much to, to sum up many years of work from that time it was to say that yeah they're just stretched out versions of regular spiral galaxies um, the, there's more gas, it has not yet turned into stars the stars are spread more thin um, but, but that's it there's just some distribution and the Milky Way happens to be You know, in spite of the huge distances between individual stars, that's relatively closely packed compared to these low surface brightness galaxies. Um, So what gave me uh, a turn, I wasn't at that time even particularly interested in the dark matter content. I was interested in how these low surface brightness galaxies related to the more familiar bright spiral galaxies And everything I had learned suggested to me that they were just stretched out versions uh, of those. And so one way to test that idea was to measure rotation curves. Um, And for the same reasons that you expect the rotation curve to decline, uh, which it doesn't when you get out the large radii, here the the observed mass density is less. uh, So again, you expect the velocities to be lower. Uh, And so the surprising thing that that my colleagues and I found, um, and this is in the mid-90s basically, um, was that they were not rotating more slowly than bright spirals of, you know, comparable total luminosity. Um, And that was really hard to understand. Um, The mass that you could see was more spread out. Um, That meant that an important component of the mass was contributing less gravity, and yet you still saw the same flat, high rotation speeds. You know, this really put a hurt on my brain. I I could not figure out a way to explain this um, because it seemed to uh, require a a fine-tuning between you know, how much dark matter there was and, and how much uh, the surface brightness was. And, uh, but there was no way around concluding that there was just a lot more uh, dark matter, relatively speaking. So in, in the bright spirals that uh, Vera Rubin had studied, there was sort of, you know, most of the mass at the small radii where you could see the stars was in the stars. And you didn't need the dark matter until you got way far out. Um, that was not the case for low surface brightness galaxies. So I guess there are two, I have two questions
1: about about that. Why would these LSBs be more dark matter dominated? And then, for, uh, aside from the dark matter issue, why would they be so spread out? What would cause, if they were uh, if they were spirals to begin with? What would cause them to
0: suddenly become spread out? Or were they? Is that how they formed to begin with? Well, so that was the interesting question is how did they become so? And so my uh, idea based on, you know, everything I'd learned up to that point was that they were more stretched out um, versions of spirals. Not that spirals suddenly got more stretched out, but that there was a distribution of things that formed and some were more dense and some were less dense. And these were just on the, the less dense uh, end of the distribution. Um, and that, had a, an important successful prediction that they would not be as tightly clustered in space. They would live out on their own more often than, than bright galaxies. And that came true. Uh, but the other important prediction was that they would have lower rotation curves uh, because they're more spread out. And that's what did not come true. Um, and I I couldn't. Reconcile those things, and I, I, you know, after some months of struggling with it, admitted that my idea had to be wrong. Um, so, at that point, I started looking around at other ideas, um, and there are lots. Um, the most sort of common idea is that um, galaxies all live in the same mass, dark matter, halo, that is, if you have a certain amount of stars, there's a corresponding amount of dark mass. Uh, And the only difference is, is, uh, at that fixed mass, how things are spread out. Are they compact or are they stretched out? Uh, And the idea is that that is mm, controlled by the angular momentum that the galaxy was born with. And then when the luminous part of the galaxy we can see uh, condensed into the center and started to form stars, it can serve that angular momentum. And so a low surface brightness galaxy just started out with a lot of um, angular momentum and a more compact galaxy had less, so it shrunk more and became more compact. And an angular Um, momentum, uh, parenthetical definition again. Right. So the angular momentum is a conserved quantity. If you spin a wheel or something, you have to apply a torque, uh, i.e. a force to stop it. It's like uh, once you get a car rolling, it's going to roll until you apply the brakes. And so there are no breaks uh, on a galaxy. Uh, so uh, if you form a galaxy, then it, in principle, has to conserve this angular momentum. And it's sort of like, uh, you know, the gas can condense in into smaller radii. As it does so, it has to spin up. It's like a, a, an ice skater pulling in her arms during a spin. she start out slow. And as uh, she brings her arms in, she'll speed up. Uh, And that's the same sort of thing that we imagine going on in these galaxies. The gas sinks in towards the center. It conserves uh, its angular momentum and speeds up.
1: But in the LSBs, and give the listener an idea about the size. If I'm not incorrect, uh, probably the most famous low surface brightness galaxy is Malin 1, uh, which was discovered by... David Malin, the famous uh, Australian photographer, astrophotographer. Am I incorrect?
0: No, that's that's absolutely right, and it is an exceptionally diffuse and large galaxy. Uh, the central regions are pretty normal, but it has this tenuous, extended, very low surface brightness disk that goes out, you know, maybe ten times as far as uh, the Milky Way. So, rather than being a hundred thousand light years in diameter, it's more like a million. Um, is just a, a mind-bogglingly huge number. So two, it's a, uh, literally a million uh, uh, light-years in diameter. I, yeah. I mean, I'd have to go back. I haven't thought about this case in a long time. I'd have to go back and do the math. But, yeah, it's of order that size.
1: Whereas the Milky uh, Way is something on the order of uh, 150,000 light-years across? Yep, that's right. And uh, Andromeda M31, our nearest the uh, neighboring grand spiral galaxy, is a little bit bigger than the Milky Way, is it not? Or, Yeah, that's right,
0: okay. um, but not a lot. It's, it's a factor of two, not a factor of ten or something. Okay. Um, but the mass of uh, Malin 1, even though it's so big, the mass isn't that much different. It's about the same as those two, um, the Milky Way and Andromeda Again, I forget the exact numbers, but it's in that ballpark. But again, there's um,
1: no way. I mean, uh, there's no way that you can invoke uh, these rotation curves that you observe in in uh, in in uh, these LSB or or Malin one or any of them without uh, invoking
0: large amounts of of dark matter. You, you you need to do something. You cannot explain rotation curves with the known law of gravity and the normal mass that we see
1: it's just not that they don't have it's just not that they're loaded with tons of, of of gas that hasn't turned into stars like giant molecular clouds and that and to me that's very curious because uh you know the giant molecular clouds in our own milky way the milky way is relatively quiescent at this stage of its evolution but uh my understanding is that you know we are still adding quite a number of uh, solar mass uh, of uh, of solar mass each year. I mean, I don't I don't have the number in front of me, but the fact is uh, there are a lot of very active star forming regions within our Milky Way still.
0: Yeah, that's right. Um, the star formation rate of the Milky Way, if I remember right, is about three solar masses per year is the equivalent of one sun-like star every year. And that's spread out over the whole range of masses with which stars form. Um, and that's sort of normal for a galaxy its size. It's a pretty big galaxy. Now, Malin one is exceptional for a low surface brightness galaxy for being so big. Um, there are a lot of lower mass galaxies that fall in this category of low surface brightness. Um, and the kind that I'm talking about, um, the late-type rotating gas-rich low surface brightness galaxies out in the field, um, those have star formation rates that are about right for their mass. They're so Basically, if you think about the math a little bit, and I, I hate to introduce math, I know, but the stellar mass <laughs> of a galaxy is just the, the, you know, the sum of all the stars that ever got made. And so the star formation rate pretty much has to be proportional to the stellar mass uh, for a galaxy that's still actively forming stars. So both the Milky Way and most of the low surface brightness galaxies that I have studied uh, fall on that relation. It's just that most of the low surface brightness galaxies are smaller in total mass. Uh, but they're, they're not exceptional in that way. Um, and that's, you know, that's something I, I sort of learned early on and, and was one of the things that led me to think, okay, they're just normal galaxies that are kind of spread out. Um, and so there was nothing in that that would make you think, oh, there's got to be lots of dark matter. So, that was but, something that we discovered right. um, by at the rotation curves. Nobody predicted
1: it. But but not to belabor the point. Uh, but the the big question is, you know, why there's so few stars, even though there's a lot of lark, a lot of dark matter, there's a lot of gas. You would think there would be stars. Uh, and sure, th- and that's so, that's so a big question still,
0: right? Absolutely. And that's that's a whole other podcast um, is what the <laughs> okay. evolution – All right. Well, <laughs> all right. Let's get well, – let's get on. Let's go – let's uh, kind of uh,
1: step back and, and go back to, to dark matter itself. So
0: okay. – let, let me ask – Go uh, ahead. Just answer the, the dark matter-related ahead. part of that question is that um, it is very hard to hide um, a lot of mass in the form of normal material If it's made of normal matter, be it gas, you know, atomic gas, molecular gas, stars, very small stars, we're clever, we can figure out a way to detect it. And that, long story short, that's just very hard to sustain in in these systems.
1: Every other month, it seems though that even though dark matter is pretty well accepted by both the educated public and professional astronomers, there's some new press release on either side of the issue uh, that seems to to debate whether or not this is a viable
0: theory. How do you? What's your take on that? What we really find is a discrepancy between what we predict with gravity as we understand it. And what we observe in the motions of stars and galaxies and and for clusters of galaxies like Zwicky Saw and the entire cosmos. Um, And so as long as um, we're right about how gravity works, then yeah, it has to be some kind of dark matter. There's no doubt uh, the astronomical evidence is overwhelming that there is a discrepancy. But it's a discrepancy. It, It doesn't really tell you whether it's literal dark matter, or whether we have the equations wrong. And uh, it's very easily to get trapped into a circular arguments, some of the things that I think are the best arguments for dark matter are dangerously circular, and vice versa. So really, all we know is that there's something very wrong. Uh, but we've given these words dark matter. Uh, we keep seeing more evidence that points to something that's wrong. Okay, well, that's also evidence for dark matter. And we use the words over and over again until it becomes familiar. And so, yes, everybody knows there's dark matter, even though the, we have no idea what it is.
1: But you're or, saying there's something uh, very wrong with, uh, with the theory. Uh, yeah. That, so, that, so that requires dark matter is what you're saying.
0: We The inference of dark matter presupposes that we understand gravity on the the scales where we infer the need for dark matter. Um, But these scales are inevitably very low accelerations, um, things that are not tested in terrestrial laboratories, scales far outside the regime of testing in our own solar system or in um, the orbits of black holes like LIGO observes, Uh, any of the things where general relativity works very well Um, and is fine, Um, those are all at high accelerations compared to the galaxies and clusters of galaxies and cosmology, where we see this discrepancy that we call dark matter. And so it is conceivable that, you know, we just have the equations wrong, and uh, that there is something different about these scales than what we've learned uh, at the the other scales where we we invented gravity. Another way to put it is that the only data that tests the law of gravity on these scales is the data that tells us that we need dark matter. All right? So, okay, which is it that you're really testing?
1: And what do you think about the all the efforts being put in uh, in in the lab experiments or neutrino experiments and exotic particle experiments here on Earth to find a particle which would represent the missing dark
0: matter? Well, I think they're fantastic and doomed to failure. So I want to praise my experimental colleagues who are working extraordinarily hard on this and really making amazing leaps and bounds in, into trying to detect dark matter particles as we conceived them back in the 1980s. Um, It's really just phenomenal the progress that they have made experimentally. Um, But they are looking for a very specific um, candidate dark matter particle that everybody, including myself, thought was the odds-on favorite Um, the so-called WIMP, the weakly interactive massive particle. Um, And so, you know, skip forward some decades, there was really good reason to think it had to be the WIMP theoretically. um, And all those reasons have basically disappeared. And, you know, in some level, we're we're worse off than we were before because what the experimentalists have successfully done is not detect that dark matter. So... Uh, A WIMP is a weakly interacting massive particle is something that was originally hypothesized to be a supersymmetric partner particle. So what the heck does that mean? Okay, so you know there's the entire menagerie of normal particles, protons, neutrons, etc., in the so-called standard model of particle physics. Um, One of the ideas that came out of the 1980s was uh, supersymmetry. Which was an attempt to unify um, all the different forces of nature, and it imagined that there was new, some new quantum state, uh, with the consequence that there would be, for every normal particle, there would be a superpartner particle. So, for every neutrino, there would be a neutralino, and um, so forth and so on. And so, the thought was that the dark matter could be these supersymmetric partner particles. Um, And in fact, in most theories that were worked out at the time, the Neutralino was, in fact, the most likely uh, candidate among those um, hypothesized uh, particles. And so the dark matter paradigm that we have now is sort of a, a shotgun marriage between astronomy and particle physics, where, you know, we got engaged and ran to the altar without really getting to know each other. Um, and uh, the astronomers were saying we need some extra mass and we know it cannot be normal matter. At the same time, the particle physicists were coming up with all sorts of ideas for physics beyond the standard model. You know, what else could there be? Theoretically, the most popular idea being this supersymmetry um, and its particles. So they... Heard, basically, to to make the history very oversimplified, particle physics heard the astronomers saying, we need non-baryonic dark matter, and the particle physicists said, well, we just predicted this stuff should be there. And so it seemed like a very natural fit. And so this led to a a well-defined hypothesis. Uh, The WIMPs are these neutralinos, or something like it, basically, the superparticles only interact with normal matter through the weak nuclear force. So most of the time it just goes right through us, just like neutrinos from the sun, right? The sunlight hits our eyes and we see it. Neutrinos come from the sun, it just goes right through the whole Earth, because it doesn't interact electromagnetically the way light does. It doesn't interact with the strong nuclear force. It only interacts through the weak nuclear force, and that force is named because it is extraordinarily weak. Mostly no interaction happens at all, so most neutrinos just go right through the entire Earth like it was a clear plate of glass. Um, Once in a rare while, uh, one of those neutrinos will interact with a nuclei somewhere on the Earth via the weak nuclear force, and particle physicists have gotten really good at building these really big underground detectors Uh, that can uh, detect these rare events. And so what the uh, experimentalists looking for dark matter have done is very similar kinds of experiments, except now the uh, dark matter particles are expected to be much heavier than a neutrino. A neutrino has almost zero mass, tiny, tiny number um, for its absolute mass. Whereas the dark matter, in, in order to get, enough mass density for what we see, uh, it needs to be something of order a hundred times as massive as a proton. Uh, So a nucleus in one of these underground detectors will notice it when one of these uh, WIMP particles bumps into it. Now most of the time they go right by without interacting, but if you make a big enough detector and you make it clean enough and you're patient enough and keep watching it, every once in a while, you should see one of these neutrino-like interactions. And so there are a whole slew of uh, experiments that attempt to detect this effect. Um, And what they have done is exclude the predicted region where we sort of thought these things would exist. Um, And so this has moved, this has resulted into a, a lot of basically shifting of the goalposts by the theorists and they will say, oh, did we say it had a cross-section of interaction at this level? Oh, we meant this much lower level. Uh, And then experimentalists grumble and improve their experiments and then they exclude that new prediction. And the theorists said, oh, did we say that number? We meant this other number. Um, And so the WIMP hypothesis is the hypothesis that the dark matter is a particle that interacts through the weak nuclear force. And so all these experiments that we've invested, you know, lots of time and effort and money in are looking for that specific kind of weak interaction. And so I gave the example of a neutrino as a particle that only interacts through the weak force. And it has to be something that interacts weakly or less, uh, because if it interacted through uh, the electromagnetic force, it wouldn't be dark. We could see it because it would interact with photons.
1: But you're um, saying that the the experiments that are running today are looking in the wrong place.
0: Well, I'm saying they looked in the place they should have looked for the wimp hypothesis, and they've basically excluded the original wimp hypothesis. So, the theorists have changed the hypothesis. Ah,
1: okay. So, they didn't find the WIMPs where they expected to find them, but that hasn't uh, deterred them from their continuing to look. They have just uh, modified the hypothesis to fit their experiments.
0: That's right. So, So, these experiments provide an exclusion limit. That is, if the WIMPs had such and such mass, and interacted so strongly then we would see this many of them and of course if you make the interaction rate weak enough then you don't ever detect them so sort of the nightmare scenario is a kind of dark matter um, that doesn't interact at all except through gravity and then you can never detect it in the laboratory
1: so that, let's uh, move on One, uh, we're coming to the end of the, uh, of the episode uh, just have a couple of more questions. I just wanted to know, could dark matter be caused by brain cosmology? In other words, uh, the interaction of gravity from a parallel bubble of a larger universe that is somehow influencing our own universe via dark matter.
0: There are hypotheses to that effect. Um, and if you explain, uh, ask me to explain them, I cannot. Um, I I don't see how that works. I don't understand it. Um, And it's an example of all the kind of wild ideas that we have. So I think what's pretty clear is that the original WIMP hypothesis, which we all agreed on was a good idea at the time, that has failed. And so that has opened the floodgates to all sorts of uh, different ideas. And that's good. Um, it invites a lot of creativity. But it also means that we're lost in this forward, uh, forest of ideas with uh, no clear way to, to hack our way out of it.
1: Do you think it's, if we do detect the a sub, a subatomic particle, uh, the WIMP, uh, or some other uh, particle that's akin to the WIMP, Uh, would it be possible to harness uh, this uh, particle in
0: some way? Well, it's hard to imagine what... in principle, there's a lot of free energy there. These wimps should be streaming through us at galactic speed, so if you could make a sail that caught them, then uh, there's a lot of energy to collect there. Just, it would just be a source of free energy. Uh, of course, the whole point is that these things don't interact with normal matter, so there's no way to build that um, hypothetical sail that catches any of that energy.
1: So the final question is, I guess from a, your own personal point of view, uh, do you regret going down this rabbit hole of dark
0: matter? <laughs> <laughs> Some days I do, yes. Um, you know, it's a really good word because I do think of that once in a while. And even in the 90s, I already felt like we were very far down that rabbit hole. Um, and it was very hard for myself to to extract my head and say, well, maybe that, maybe that's just not right. Um, and, uh, you know, since that time, most people have just been digging the rabbit hole deeper and deeper, furiously and furiously, and we're really far down so that if the WIMP hypothesis is incorrect, as it appears to me to be at this point, um, you know, what What else do we do? How do we get out of this uh, part of the problem with dark matter is that it's dark. It's not just dark, it's invisible. So we've imagined that it is there for all the right reasons, just like we did for ether in the 19th century. What if it's wrong? How do we tell? Um, it is a concept, not a theory. We can sp- falsify specific uh candidates uh, or at least rule them out to some limit um but we can never do an experiment that says okay this is just wrong um
1: i hear you but uh i I know from attending astronomical conferences and if you invoke uh, alternative theories and we don't have time to go into those uh but even if you say well suppose it's wrong uh you are looked at you know, even as a journalist, you're 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 looked at like a pariah, and <laughs> I can tell you, you know, I've had conversations with uh, very well-respected, uh, you know, theoretical uh, physicists who, you know, look at me like, well, you know, don't think so, and and they will defend the defend the idea of dark matter and dark matter theory to the hilt. So I I assume you've had the same experience.
0: Oh, certainly. Um, So there are so many things to say, both scientifically and sociologically here, Um, but a lot of it goes back to what we just said, is that we have been furiously digging this rabbit hole deeper and deeper. And so I think it has reached the point where it is um, psychologically impossible for a large community of scientists to ever admit that it's wrong. Um, I, I. So this, this has been something that I've thought about a lot. Um, it has deep roots in the philosophy of science. What does it mean to do science? How do you define uh, a scientific theory, especially a physical theory? Um, and so, you know, I, I I really don't know because there are alternatives that have had more predictive success than dark matter. Um, The statement I hear a lot from the particle physics community is that we know dark matter exists we just have to detect it. And that again is just wrong. It presupposes that the answer is literal dark matter. And what do they base that statement on? They base that statement on astronomical evidence. Who understands the astronomical evidence? Well, the astronomers understand it better than the particle physicists. I mean, I don't tell them how to do their particle games. Um, and, you know, I don't care what particle physicists, how eminent he is. If he tells you that it has to be dark matter, he is uninformed about an important part of the data.
1: And um, so... Unfair question, but do you have any idea when this mystery will be solved? No. Um,
0: I think this is a, a century timescale problem um, in the same sense that Ptolemaic epicycles was. Um, it's already been, you know, 35, 40 years that we've been struggling with this with no real progress. I mean, we've done amazing things in terms of the data, both astronomically and in terms of uh, not detecting dark matter, but putting real limits on it. um, But all that means is that we have this incredible array of astronomical observations that we have to explain. um, And that's really hard to satisfy all ends. And so we've gotten to a point where people just ignore inconvenient parts of the data. Uh, I don't think I can explain all of the data with any theory that is currently available. Um, I've gotten really kind of despondent about it, Um, but there are a lot of people who say, oh, yeah, dark matter does everything, and that's because it's a sloppy theory. It doesn't make any prediction. It just whatever you need. Oh, there's some extra mass here. Sure, we'll make it dark. Uh, That's that's not scientific. That's induction.
1: And so uh, the last thing is... uh, What should the astronomical community be doing that it isn't to solve this uh, conundrum?
0: Well, I think it should have a more open mind. Um, I think it's doing all the right things in terms of the data collection, but it does too much. It gives theory too much credit. It just assumes that we actually understand the universe based on this dark energy and the dark matter when those are just familiar names, so we're comfortable with it because we've used those names for a long time. But really, it's an embarrassment. We only understand 5% of the universe in that scenario. We don't know what that 25% dark matter is. We don't really understand what we mean by that 70% that's dark energy. Um, So basically, 95% of the universe is ignorance. Uh, We infer the need for it. And so we just assume it has to be there, um, uh, but maybe that's a sign that we're missing some deeper truth. So really, the, the big obstacle is just letting yourself think outside the box.
1: Well, we'll leave it there, Stacy. So again, Stacy McGaugh, who is the chair of the Department of Astronomy at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio. Always a pleasure, Bruce. Thank you so much for taking the time, and, uh, you know, maybe, uh, who knows, there'll be some sort
0: of breakthrough. Oh, I hope so. (laughs) It's it's been a long time. This has been Cosmic Controversy with Bruce Dormini. Please follow Bruce on Facebook, on Twitter at BDormini, or his regular posts on Forbes.com. Until next time, clear skies. Music provided by RFM.